two, three. Welcome to. <laughs> no, we gotta do it at the same time, so we're just gonna say recording. Welcome, Welcome to, to a Florida, Florida thing. I am your host, Tyler, with my grandmother, Grammel. Today we are going to be talking about the novel Stiltsville by Susanna Daniel, and then we are going to be interviewing her. I can't wait. When we were thinking about books that we wanted to read, Grimmel said that, oh, I have a Florida book lying around somewhere in the house. Yes, but I didn't say it exactly like that. I said, you have a book that might be a Florida author, and I found it. I knew right where it was, and it was by uh, somebody who had been born in Florida, and it was about Florida. Stiltsville is about a water top community, and then it's about a marriage, it's about love, it's about loss, it's about all of these things. I know, I'm just going to love her, because I love the way she writes. The book is set in Miami, and it follows a character through the decades of her life, when she first meets the person who will become her husband, to the rest of their life together, essentially. And the book gets a title from Stiltsville because one of the characters owns a house in Stiltsville, which is a water top community. So they have these structures, these kind of houses on pilings out in Biscayne Bay. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the book? It was about love, acceptance, patience, and friendship, and uh, growing with each other, not just one growing. They love their child more than life. I found it very interesting because it was about the mechanics of being married, having a friendship, raising children, and it was just carried out in a, a wonderful not a methodical way, but a way that made the story start and continue on a great foundation. And I think it would make a perfect chick flick, which I think is the best movies you can go to. Hallmark movie, maybe. Well, no, there's some sex and and, uh, and these kind of <laughs> chick flicks. I don't think there was that much sex in the book that you said. <laughs> no, but they... they uh, let you know that sex does exist. exist. In fact, it's one of God's pleasures for us to. It wasn't gratuitous in the no, them book no, at no. All. No, they didn't go into you know diagrams or rules and regulations or how to do this, that, and the other. It was just the joy of having a good meal. <laughs> the the community of uh, people that lived on uh, houses that were stilts. That was very interesting to me too. I did a little research on Stiltsville. Had you heard of Stiltsville before? Only because I saw that book laying around for a year or two. I went through some archival newspapers and other sources, and I have a brief history that I've put together about Stiltsville. As the story goes, in the late 1920s, a man named Crawfish Charlie set up a seafood and bait shop on a sunken barge in Biscayne Bay. Later, a man grounded two barges and set up a bungalow for vacations. Another guy built a place to gamble. There's always gambling back in the day in Florida. Right, interesting. In the 40s, locals heard they could lease parts of Biscayne Bay for only a dollar an acre. The community started to take shape. At one point, the community counted about 14 structures, built 12 feet over the water on pilings driven 18 feet into bedrock. They stretch for about two miles across the outer edge of Biscayne Bay. 
At its peak in the 1960s, there were 27 structures on the flats. Then Hurricane Betsy hit in 1965. This was one of the worst hurricanes recorded in Florida history. After the storm, the state implemented strict rules for the buildings. There had been some talk to expand the community in the 80s, but the state decided to instead expand Biscayne National Park, and it included the area of Stiltsville. So all the leases weren't renewed, which is something she brings up in the book as well. After Hurricane Andrew in 1992, only seven structures remain. And then in 2003, a nonprofit was put in charge of maintaining the structures, and now people can rent them for the day. Unfortunately, they were damaged by Hurricane Irma in 2017. So according to the Stiltsville Trust website, only one or two houses are able to support a public use event at this time as they're repairing the damages. Can you imagine just living on the water and in storms and sleeping and being pregnant and sick? (laughs) They just lived on the water and loved it. She had to adapt more than him because he's the one that kind of grew up on the on his home or their home. Right. Francis is who you're talking about, yeah. the main character. Yeah. She's from Georgia. And then she comes down to Miami for a wedding. And then... Basically stayed. <laughs> kind of. And what I liked about the book is how Florida it was to me. How it was so sensuous with the details. And it really felt like this was a book by a Floridian talking about life in Florida. Yeah, the food, the sunsets, uh, plants. It was like somebody was talking about things without even breathing. They just knew it. And according to Susanna's biography, she, I guess her family owned one of the houses or she went out to Stiltsville regularly. She's she's an awesome writer. Nothing is uh, predictable. And I like that in a a story in a movie in a book that you know it's not predictable it keeps you thinking and kind of on your toes and trying to figure where it's going to go it gets you more involved in a in a book or a story when it's not so predictable it's like being at a movie that's uh, foreign speaking and you have to watch the words to be able to know what's going on you get more focused in a story that is not predictable I liked it when she started talking about her child and the way they let that child be herself with some restriction. But they celebrated her being unique and uh, smart in some areas, didn't worry about her being not so with it in other areas. And the, the way they just both loved that child. Like you were saying, this book really does revolve around a family and parenting and a marriage. The other day you were talking about some advice for people who are married. What would you say to folks who are just getting married? I was married 47 and a half years. I know this is very cut and dry, but from what I have learned, things I have gleaned, that if this person is rotten after 10 years, they're not going to change. And you need to get on with, I should have gotten on with my life because uh, life is is so special and there's so many adventures and so many uh, ways to grow. That's very important. Now, I am a believer, but in those 10 years with me, I had attempted so many ways of being, of changing and being different. And after, that's my outlook. Sorry. 
after 10 years if people aren't willing to change. You both have to change because you're going to grow, of course, or hopefully. And that's it. Cut and dry. Something in the book that I noticed, too, is they spend a lot of time together outside, Frances and her husband, Dennis. Dennis is from Florida. He's from Miami, and he likes to go fishing, swim. He's the one that owns the house in Stiltsville. They spent a lot of time together outside, or his family owns the house. And uh, a lot of their life surrounded having a boat. Now, they never had a luxurious boat, but there to get around to the places and things they liked to do involved having a boat. And they involved that child with learning how to drive the boat or pilot the boat, whatever, and teaching the child how to fish teaching the child how to, um, you know, all about the water life. It was just their, you know, way of doing things. Didn't y'all have a boat at one point? Yes. We had a big old huge thing. And it with salt water, they require maintenance. I think they always had a little boat. It's like a little dog is easier to take care of than a big dog. Even though a big dog has a lot of uh, wonderful qualities, A little dog is just easier to take care of. There's that old Florida saying, you don't ever really want to own a boat. You want to know someone who owns a boat. Amen. (laughs) So you don't have to take care of it. And there's also that saying that two happiest days of your life is when you buy a boat. And the other happiest day is when you sell a boat. Right. But... If at least this character, he liked taking care of the boat, the boat, fixing the engine. He liked doing all of that kind of thing. He liked working outside, period. He was always doing something to the landscape, and he loved the outside. That was his life. And she learned to appreciate all that, too. And the book follows certain time periods, so every chapter is a new year. And which I thought was really cool because it gave history bits and bits and pieces of history throughout. Very much so. It didn't go into real a lot of depth about the history, but it was, you know, it was there to kind of guide you through Florida history, like the hurricanes, the Miami riots from the 80s. And there was one particular section about the Gainesville Ripper in 1990. Kind of kept you on the edge of your seat. I really didn't know what was going to happen. In right. that chapter. A little bit of background on the Gainesville Ripper. In the fall of 1990, five Gainesville students were murdered by this guy named Danny Harold Rowling, who'd become known in the media later as the Gainesville Ripper. The victims' ages ranged from a first-year UF student who was 17 to a 23-year-old enrolled at the local community college. The murders traumatized the college town, And UF is one of the largest universities in the country, and it's also one of the most well-known popular state schools here. Alatra is a really country-fied section Uh, Yeah, it's kind of, I mean, it's the Gators, it's the Swamp, Alatra. I really like Gainesville, though. I think it's it's got springs, it's got nature. It is a college town, but it, it has a lot of that old Florida nature that I really like. It doesn't not beat you like where we're at necessarily. Sure, right. You don't want to swim in their their waters. After nine days of testimony, an Alachua County grand jury issued an 11-count indictment charging him with five first-degree murders, three counts of sexual battery, and three counts of armed burglary. He wasn't from Florida. He was what I read described as a Louisiana drifter. Wow. And so he drifted down... I remembered the happenings 
And I remembered, you know, he became almost a um, household word, the Rawlings. Um, I just don't remember that Ripper name didn't sink in. And I also think to maybe the the local media, because something that I was finding in the newspaper archives, specifically from the Independent Alligator, which is one of the best collegiate papers in the country, they were saying how a lot of the media and stuff like that was, they were getting some of the details wrong to kind of push out the narratives because of the true crime aspect of it. So, and 1994, the Independent Alligator ran an opinion section, and they said Gainesville Student Murders, The Gainesville Ripper, and Beyond Murder were two books that had been written pretty quickly after the murders happened. And this opinion piece says each one was filled with errors as the authors rushed to get the book out in time to catch the interest of readers, in other words, to make money. And then in the next paragraph... They write, true crime writers don't seem to care about the facts of a case or about the feelings of those victimized. Their only concern is how to make a fast buck. And I thought that was really interesting because I had read that these murders had inspired the movie Scream, which was a huge movie. Tell them who um, starred in that movie. Courtney Cox. Right. And Drew Barrymore was in it in the first scene, the really famous scene where she's running from, she's running inside and the guy calls her on the phone and asks her what's her favorite scary movie. (laughs) You think that's funny? (laughs) Have you ever seen Scream? No, I don't think I have. But I mean, it's like, of course, the murderer is going to call you on the phone and say, have you ever seen such and such movie? Right. It was kind of, of, it was kind of campy in that kind of way. I have always said that Scream is is the scariest movie to me, horror movie that I've seen. It's not even the most, it's not even the scariest or the bloodiest or anything like that, but it, it just always really freaked me out because I always thought, well, this could really happen. And It was kind of true to life as we know it now. Right, you know, and it always freaked me out. And I never liked horror movies. I never saw horror movies. You're not a really big fan of horror movies either. I didn't see them until I was an adult. Yeah, I think... Basically, the only ones I've seen is The Blob, The Thing, and this was very early, like in my, almost my teenage years, and then um, Psycho. Oh. And, uh, but from there on, they became too uh, bloody and graphic, and if that's real life, I don't really care for real life all that much, period. I like fantasy and so on and so forth. Bluff. Fluff. <laughs> and I need a t-shirt that says fluff. I never really liked watching horror movies when I was younger just because they scared me. But then when I got older, I started watching. I was really interested in American Horror Story. People were talking about how good it was <laughs> and all of that kind of stuff. Cool. So I got into watching that. And that kind of dipped my toe into the waters. And then I started opening up to watching more horror movies and all of that kind of thing. Um, But anyway, this movie had always really scared me, even before I knew that it was inspired by true events. I never knew that until much later. And so when I found out it was actually based on, or not based, but it was inspired by these murders, it really made me feel really weird that these were inspired by actual people that had been murdered. And in Scream, the movie doesn't take place in Florida or anything like that. So I I didn't connect those dots until now. And it also just really weirds me out because the movie came out in 
1996. While Rowling was still alive, he was in prison, so he saw all of the things that he did become popular media, you know, from prison and while he was on death row. He was one of those people that became infamous and had a woman write to him and fall in love with him, you know how that that can happen, and then they became married in prison. I would say it helped him become more narcissistic. Right. He was, I think that's the thing, right? It's like people want, these serial killers and murderers want to be known, and the fact that he was known must have really is really sad to me and really weird. Yeah. And then the woman that he married helped him write a book. And the book was called The Making of a Serial Killer, The True Story of the Gainesville Murders and the Killer's Own Words. And I looked it up on, I think, Amazon or Goodreads, and there were like over 100 reviews. I don't know. I mean, people really like the true crime. See, I like fluff. (laughs) (laughs) But Scream became a really popular movie. It made over $100 million domestically. And didn't they have sequels to it? They've already had Scream 1, 2, 3, and 4. And there's a Scream 5 slated to come out in 2021. Wow. It's a big franchise. Wow, yeah. And so Rowling had been convicted of his crimes in 1990, and then he was executed by lethal injection in 2006. I think it's really difficult to write about true crime, stuff like that, and and do it in a respectful way. And I think that's something that Susanna did. I wouldn't, I mean, she talks about the murders because one of the characters is at UF while it's happening. But she doesn't, and she does give details, but she doesn't go into the whole Gainesville Ripper infamous kind of stuff about the murders. So I thought that she did that in a really respectful way. And it really made an impression on them that stayed with them for the rest of, I think, their life, how dear life is. And always be aware of people are here one day and gone the next sometimes. So love them. And the book does take, about the last third or a couple of chapters, the book does take a pretty dramatic turn. But I think we can probably talk about that with Susanna because I want to get her viewpoint on, on making that choice for that character. And that part of it makes it one of the best books ever written. And That's anybody that uh, reads recommendation. needs to read this book. It's got everything. In the last segment, we talked about Stiltsville, and now we're going to get to talk to Susanna. She's going to tell us about growing up around Stiltsville, her writing practices, what she's working on now, how she goes to a nunnery to write. That's really an interesting detail. And what it was like starting her own writing program. I'm going to drop us right into the conversation. She's wearing the cutest shirt today, too. Just I don't think you can see it, but there's like a flower growing out of the pocket. Oh, yeah, that's wonderful. And I have on green britches. Oh, okay. So, you, so you're like a flower. <laughs> so I'm really, really cute today. We decided to read books by Florida authors, and we were like bouncing the idea around. And she was like, I think we have a book in the house that fits the bill. And it happened to be Stiltsville. And also, it was kind of cool that it was the 10th year anniversary, I noticed, of the publication. Oh, yeah, I guess it was. Oh, my gosh. I should really be writing more, shouldn't I? 
Oh, <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> you should. The second one is called Sea Creatures, and it has some of the same characters, but not a lot. And then the third one is not published yet, but it's called, I think we're going to call it Battersea Road. So where are you currently? I'm in Madison, Wisconsin at my house. I've lived here for 20 years. I've lived here since 9-11, so wow. that's all, 19 years, yeah. What brought you from one end of uh, the United States to the opposite? I Well, I went to college in New York, and then I stayed there for a little bit, and then I went to graduate school in Iowa, and I could not have found Iowa on a map. You know, like, just didn't, I had no idea. Well, my I don't know if I could anyone. either, honestly. I, know, I mean, there's, there had never been any reason to. Um, so when my brother came to visit me once, he, he and his partner, or his now husband, live in San Francisco, and they like my brother made the reservations and then they got on the plane and his husband was like um what airport are we flying into and craig was like the iowa airport and Stephen was like there are more there's more than one airport in iowa they ended up five hours away from my house there's like an airport <laughs> 20 minutes from my house <laughs> they had to rent a car and come. <laughs> but that's that was us we didn't understand about the middle of the of the country so i I left Iowa for a, a graduate, a postgraduate fellowship here in Madison, and it was just a one-year fellowship, and then I ended up staying. Uh, on as teaching? No, you know what? I, I was a teaching thing for two years. It was one year, and then I got one year extended. But then, since then, I have worked in tech. And then uh, in 2013, I opened my own private creative writing studio. And we're the largest creative writing studio in the, in the city. We've had something like 500 students come through. And now we're on Zoom, so that stinks, but otherwise it's been great just working for myself and slowly writing my books. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. So now with Zoom, Zoom folks from out of state might be able to sign up. Yeah, actually we've been sort of wondering how to get the word out about things because I really value the in-person experience. I teach a, like I teach several classes, but the one that I really love is a year-long book writing class. You, you know, sit down in January and you're with the same group once a month through the whole year. And by the end, you have 300 pages, ideally. And that's just, you know, there's, there's no real substitute for that, that three hours at the table. I mean, it's just really intense. It's so supportive. It's a great connection. But because we had already been a group, before we started on Zoom this year, I feel like it did translate pretty well. But I hope that I won't have to start next year's group on right. Zoom. Is your family still in South Florida? My father and stepmother are in Miami. They live like half a mile from where I grew up in Coral Gables, yeah. Wow. And so I usually visit twice a year. I love going down to Florida with my kids and just spending days at the beach and uh, eating a lot of fish. and. I just love it. I love the humidity. I love everything about it. But I mean, every time I step out of the airport, I feel better. I love South Florida. I always take them to the Everglades. And what do y'all kind of like to do out in the Everglades? Bike around and count. I have little ones. It's pretty little ones. So we count the alligators and gawk yeah. at them and, you know, all of that. Uh, it, we always go to the beach in the, in the Everglades and then um, we'll talk to the people you talk to the people who I know who live there and they're like, you did what? You went where? It's like Miamians don't go to the beach and they don't go to the Everglades, you know? It's like, like why would you go to the Everglades? <laughs> and the Keys, we always go to the Keys. 
I had never heard of Siltsville, you know, even though living in Florida, I had never heard of it before. And I think I read in the back or maybe on your website or something that your family had some kind of house out there or you had access. So can you talk to us a little bit about what it was like growing up in such a cool part of the, the world? Yeah, my grandfather was in construction, like in early Miami, like he had been born and raised in Miami. and My father was born and raised in Miami. And he is was one of the first people to go out and basically just ram a boat into a shoal. And they called that still spill. And then one of the hurricanes, I don't remember if it was Betsy, 54, I think, they eliminated all of those. So they went back again and they built up like major houses. Like it was probably as big as our house in Miami, maybe a little smaller you know, two bathrooms fed by a, a big rain tower, generators, of course. Um, and you could, it took about maybe 20 minutes to cross the bay to get there. And we grew up going there because by the time I was around, my grandfather and, and uh, my grandmother, were sort of, they were in the Carolinas and they weren't really using it anymore. So it fell to my family. And we shared it. This isn't in the book, but we shared it with another two families. So we only got like every third weekend. You know, as a kid, it was like, oh, we're going to Stiltsville again. You know, <laughs> there's no TV, there's no friends. All you do is read, um, play cards and eat. And, you know, it was always such a pain. And my father would always lose his temper around the boat, you know, and docking the boat and all of that. But then again, it's like my whole childhood is filled with these memories of being on this little island with my family. And, you know, you cannot replicate that now. Like I, I, I could try, but I, I can't do anything like that. Yeah, there's nothing like that. No, no. And then it, it stayed. It was, it continued to be our, you know, sort of second home until Andrew. I was a senior in high school and ours was almost completely demolished. And then we had to have the, pi- the last of the pilings removed. Okay. So, so that was some all of it pretty much by Acrophilia. Mimic, okay. So I was going to say, that's a moment. That was a, a really tough, tough moment in the book. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, my father and Dennis are really different people. I feel like I, I sort of took the best of my father and put him in Dennis and then elaborated. But uh, I felt for him that he was, you know, he realized that his life was going to change now. And I think that was true of my dad, too. I, I do think that he felt like he was old enough that he couldn't really kind of keep it going. There are still seven houses out there. It's at least sunsetted. And then um, Florida took possession and they, um, they couldn't keep them up. Uh, and it was like a mess for a few years. And so they gave the, the original owners back the keys and they call them caretakers. And so the original owners are now 100% responsible for the houses, but they don't belong to them anymore. Wow. So, yeah. So they can go, but other people can go too. Oh my goodness. Yeah. yeah. Well, I got to get ask you. Uh-huh. How'd you come up with that idea about the eel? <laughs> she loves the beginning of the book. Oh, that was from life. <laughs> Thank you. I'm so glad. That was from that was from life. There was this eel that lived in a toilet bowl <laughs> under the the T-shaped dock. It's still spelled. Well, I I you know, they say truth is stranger than fiction. So I wondered if that was Real. And did you actually go under the water and swim around that thing? 
No, my mom always told me not to get anywhere near it. So I don't even think I ever saw it. I mean, people would oh. talk about it and like, you know, my brother's friends would come and they would kind of swim near it, but I, I never got anywhere near it. Now, I think in the book, somebody killed it, right? Yes. And that's true in real life. Some guest killed it and that was not okay with my parents. And I bet not. Yeah. yeah. It was like a pet. Well, you left it alone and it left you alone. That's right. And then somebody came along and killed it. Trophy kill. I don't. I bet nobody else had a pet ill in the, one of their book they wrote. Oh yeah, that's true. I've never thought of that. I bet not. You know, because I've been reading since I was a little girl. Never read any uh, read anything about a pet ill. Well, you know, people always say, "How did you know you could write a book about a happy marriage?" They don't say, "How did you know you could write a book about a pet ill?" But they always <laughs> say that about the happy marriage. Because what I think was so so interesting about the protagonist was, yes, she was very happy, but she was often like questioning things and she had kind of some distance. So she was kind of in her head about things. So I do see it as being happy, but it wasn't like uncomplicated the way she, her feelings were, you know. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and it gave us a lot of talk about about like what actually makes a healthy and happy marriage, too. Oh, did you figure it out? Because you could make some, take some notes for me. I would like to know. <laughs> no, I'll just make this one sentence. I'm a very merry widow. But I was married 47 and a half years. Mostly she said if someone's not going to change within 10 years, they're not going to change, period, is her what she told me. Right. Yeah. You know, if you don't like them, what they are, they're not, and they don't change in 10 years. I do not say stay with somebody, not at all. We it, got a realist over here. It, it, affects, right. it affects the children, no matter yeah. what you try to do. But anyway, I'm very merry. <laughs> Something that I found really poignant about the writing was that how you were able to mix history into the writing too. And you were talking about the Miami riots too, which makes, you know, it feels like a very relevant conversation about what's going on currently this summer and, and before the summer. So I'm wondering what was your process for including that historical kind of element into the book? Um, that's a good question. I mean, I, I, I remember that period so well, and I remember Christo's Pink Island so well. And I think what I did was try to try to get in those really those parts of my childhood that were not similar to parts of childhood and somebody growing up in Amherst or in New Jersey or something, you know, um, it's because of course, most of my childhood was exactly the same as somebody growing up in Amherst or New Jersey or whatever. Um, but those things really stood out to me, like the way that the whole city became scary, I kind of overnight. And yet, my parents, we lived in this kind of like little white enclave, you know, and then the way that my friend's parents would talk about the riots versus the way my parents talked about the riots, that was very obvious to me, even as like a little kid, that there was a big difference. So I wanted that in the book, you know, I wanted that message. Um, and now I, I, I even said this recently on Facebook, I, I think the message would probably be very different again. But my father's message at the time was, you know, rioting isn't like some ethical wrong that makes you know that is only done by bad people writing is is uh desperation and he and it's anger 
and it's not a conspiracy. You know, it's not strategic. And, you know, I, I think that has stayed with me and I brought that to the most recent stuff, you know, and, and that's how I talk to my kids. And it seems like Dennis is kind of like, these are the facts. This is what's going on. And it seemed like a really healthy way to, to talk about tough things with children. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was very straightforward about it. It was great, though, how both of those, the mother and the father, just loved their child, period. There was no conditions on it. They just loved her. I grew up like that. But when I became a parent myself, it was harder to let your children be themselves. When you see us all things that, uh-huh, uh-huh, you know, you didn't know about. So I, I, uh, I, I admired that in your characters. Yeah. Well, there's, um, you know, Margot isn't, they're not in this, on the same wavelength, you know, for the last part of the book. And I, you know, I think that's very sad for a mom, but it's so, you know, it's, it's absolutely realistic. Of course. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And in the third book, um, Francis, who's the narrator of Stiltsville, comes to help Margot with her young kids and with her kind of bouts of depression. Oh, okay. So the, the book that you're currently working on or that's in publication process is a sequel or like a continuation? It's not. It just has okay. like, like Margot is in it, who's the best friend in, in, in Francis' best friend in Stiltsville. She's in it. But the main character is named Kate, and she doesn't have any role in Stillsville at all. Okay. so And then the other main character is Barton, and he also doesn't. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So like a side plot or something, kind of? Yeah. Yeah, like they're neighbors with people from, they're neighbors and friends with people from Stillsville and Sea Creatures. Miami is a really small town in some ways, like white Miami, you know, is a really small town, and that's kind of how I grew up. Like everybody knew everybody and that's sort of just how my books have turned out too. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, I'd really love to write something in which, you know, I use sort of a different location, but that location is so like deep in my blood. I don't know if I ever will. And that's one of the things that I, you know, as Floridians too, I'm reading these scenes and there's so much detail that, you know, really painting what's going on. And it makes, you know, it's very Florida, the scenery and the descriptions. Which is, I wanted to ask you something about the way you handled the U.S., the, the universe, the murders at and near uh, the, the University murders, of yeah. Florida. Well, once again, it, you know, I was in high school and it happened. So... So I was maybe in like 10th or 11th grade. And so I knew tons of people at UF, but I, I more kind of knew my parents' friends whose kids were at UF. And I just remember thinking like, what is it like to have your kid at UF right now? That's just terrifying. And it was, you know, it was a slow burn, right? Like one murder, another murder, two murders, like it, it went on and it was like, what's going to happen next? And tons of people came home from UF, you know, they, they just emptied out. Um, and that's, I mean, I did ask myself that question as a child and then I worked it out as an adult, you know, what is it like to have your kid on a campus where this is happening? No. You know, the parents, uh, one of them wanted them to go right home and the, uh, the child didn't, the young person did not. 
Mm-hmm. She wanted to continue, but in a safer place. Uh, so you kind of came at that in different directions. I don't know if I could have been that wise as a parent and say, oh, well, if that's what your decision will back you up, because that was heavy duty stuff. Yeah. Well, that was also like, I think the point in their relationship when they were realizing they're not going to get to control her anymore, you know, and that's, so I don't know if I could do that as a parent either. Remember, I wrote all of this before I was even married. (laughs) And that's the, that's the challenge of the college years, right? Is that you send them off and you're kind of like, okay, make good choices. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Yeah, good luck. And so I know the book has, this is the 10th year anniversary, so it's not necessarily spoiling what happens, but their book takes a turn health-wise at probably like the the last third or so. Mm-hmm. Um, how did how did you write those scenes and, and kind of what was that turn? Oh, you know, actually I have a good answer for that. You know, I started it, I gave him, this is just the hubris of a young writer. I gave him um, Parkinson's. And then, you know what book was so big while I was writing this, at the beginning of me writing this, which it took 10 years, so that'll tell you something, um, was uh, uh, The Corrections. Do you remember that? Jonathan Franzen's first big one? Yeah. And it was, it was all Parkinson's. So I decided to change it. And what I found was that, and I mean, that's absurd. Of course, you can write about Parkinson's even if you're, you know, like it's a ridiculous um, flight of fancy, but, but I'm so glad I changed it because what I found with ALS is that because it is, it, your mind stays so sharp for so long and because the, the disease follows the same pattern in everyone, although it's faster in some people and slower in others, it still goes in the same. It's, so it's really, it's very well plotted. You know, I mean, it's, it's sort of right, right for fiction because you just go from one stage to the next. And then the other reason that it was a good choice is, and this sounds a little mercenary, but um, is because, because people keep their, their so sharp for so long and so deeply into the disease, people who are only like a month away from death are still writing blogs. So I would read all these blogs, you know, from beginning to end and get like that personal experience of you know, the first failing, the second failing, the third failing, you know, the, the deterioration and like what people were doing in, you know, 1993 or four to communicate with each other when they lost the, you know, ability to speak that all that stuff was in those blogs. So you mentioned earlier about writing this book in while you were in grad school before you were married and all of that kind of thing. Um, now that you've had some distance from it, how has your writing approach to writing changed? Um, well, I think, you know, the first book, you know, they say it, it's your whole, you put your whole life into your first book. And then in the second book, you only have like, <laughs> you know, since you wrote your first. And I do feel like that's true. I mean, I feel like I wrote that book to keep my Florida roots alive. Um, Francis is not my mother, but there's some things about my family that I, I kept alive in the book. Um, my, my childhood family. Uh, and then in my second book, after I had had, I don't, I was still married. I sold my first book when I was pregnant with my first child. And I sold my second book when I was pregnant with my second child. Oh, so that's so, a luck, uh, lucky thing then. <laughs> it's a, it's deadlines are always good. You know that as a writer, deadlines are good, <laughs> and that's a big deadline. So, um, 
I was still, you know, in a happy marriage and, um, and, but I still felt like having had more marital experience, I couldn't write another book about a happy marriage. Like I really needed to write a book about an unhappy marriage, which my second book is about. And I also, I wanted to take a little more, um, I wanted to take a harder look at monogamy and what it does to people in an unhappy marriage and whether or not it's fair to ask that of them. And that's something that's sort of true in the second book. The second book is about a, a woman who's married to a man who has extreme sleep disorder, parasomnia. So, and that's because I had heard this thing um, in NPR about this guy who has parasomnia. And I thought, what would it be like to marry, be married to this guy? You know, highest suicide rates among mm-hmm. like any, you know, d- uh, disorder. I mean, it's just a really terrible thing. And I thought, that's what I'm going to write about. I'm going to write about. Well, two things. I wanted to write about a woman married to a man who's parasomnia, a parasomniac and what that does to the marriage. And then I also wanted to write about the hermit who's featured in Stiltsville. Oh, yeah. Okay. Guy, yeah. We don't know what happened to, write, to him. Right. We don't, we really don't know. know. Okay. We don't know. Yeah. So I, um, he's based on a real person. My parents really would like stand um, at the kitchen window with binoculars and watch like naked women come and go. And, <laughs> Um, and he was always naked and, uh, we never knew his name or anything. And once I was, um, I had been sort of wrestling with the idea of, uh, writing about him. And I was at the Miami book fair for Stiltsville. And this woman came up, um, she waited in line to have her book signed. And then she came up and she handed me a bunch of Polaroids and they were of like a young version of her in a bikini on a stilt house dock with this guy. And I was like, what is this? You know, who is this? And he, and she was like, Oh, that's Robert such and such. He lived full time at Stiltsville. And I was like, that's the hermit. <laughs> you knew the hermit. And I asked her what he happened to him. And he, she was like, Oh, he lives like in Peru in a hut or something. I don't know. <laughs> I don't, I think it would have been years, you know, but I was like, okay, I'm definitely going to write about this guy who goes and lives like that. Um, with everything going on in quarantine, how has your writing practice changed? Are you writing or what, what's your kind of relationship with writing right now? I um, I went ahead and finished my last draft in quarantine. So now I am waiting to sell that book. And I have been writing like a few short stories that might make it into something. Um, but I find that stress and writing don't go very well together. I don't, I'm not a writer who sits down and waits for the muse to call, but I, you know, the, the kind of anxiety we're, we're all experiencing is not conducive to creative work. And that's why you, we really have to support each other um, and give each other like a lot of space and, and be really gentle with ourselves, I think right now. Um, but I, I mean, summer is never great for me for writing. It's always catch as catch can. But what I've always said is uh, if you have work or children or both that are kind of keeping your days like, you know, mixed up so you don't get long writing time, I can't, I can't stress enough how amazing it is to go on retreat. It is often so much easier to leave your life behind for a few days than to try to fit three hours in for three days. You know, I mean, it's, that's sometimes impossible for me. So, but I, it is possible for me to go away for three days. Now, do you go away by yourself or do you actually go to a retreat? I've done a few things. So I've done, I've done like the whole, you know, um, you know, you apply for a residency thing and I've gone to, to McDowell and to, and then you get on a plane and you go. But, but the way that I wrote my third book really was by taking weekends 
at an Airbnb nearby that's on a lake. And I basically did nothing all day. And then more recently, about six months ago, I started going, or maybe eight months ago, I started going to this um, monastery here that's oh. run by nuns. And they feed you and you get a room. And it's like one of my favorite places in the world. I'm going next week. Nice. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm going to start a new book. But it's awesome. just much easier to say to your life, like, you need to do without me for three days than it is to say to your life, like, you need to do without me for three hours every day. Oh, yeah. It's just, you know, it just doesn't work that way. So that's what I recommend to people who have trouble getting their work done. I also am just a big fan of moving forward. Like, as long as you're moving forward, that's fine. If you make 10, if you write 10 pages a month, that's fantastic. Well, and, and I can tell from talking with you that you moved forward and having a writing school, you know, that's, wow. Yeah, I love it. I, I just love it. I, you know, there's so many writers who want to take themselves seriously and they don't have any way to do it. And then, you know, people improve, you know, when you really take yourself seriously and you have somebody who's there working with your, like deep diving into your original material. You have, there's no, I can never say to somebody, oh, they're not going to make it because they will. They, they just, you, if you're taking yourself seriously, you can get so much better. And, and what are, what are some of the classes that you all offer in the future? We do boot camps, which are like four weeks. And then we'll do like, I, these are not my favorite of our classes. My partner does more of these. Um, they'll be like, you know, how to write a scene or like how to play with your writing instead of, you know, taking it so seriously or structure or character or language. Um, and then we'll do fiction, creative nonfiction monthly. Um, so that over the course of four to six months, you get to workshop two or three times. And then we have the year long book writing class. And we also have a year long, um, visions revisions class. So the first six months you're with one of us and you submit three original pieces, either essays or short stories. And then the next four months, you're with the other of us, and you resubmit two of them. Is that a true bird I keep hearing in the background? <laughs> oh, yeah. We have lots of birds. They are beautiful. Madison, Madison is – I have not ever been a fan. But I'll say it is a great place to quarantine. I mean, there, you know, you just have plenty of space. It's beautiful in the summer. Tons of dog parks for my dog. Tons of rivers for my kayak tons of bike trails for my bike. You know, it's just like an easier place to be at home than a lot of places, I'd say. A lot quieter than Miami, I would assume. Yeah, I would be, you know, I mean, Miami is so expensive that I don't ever even think about living there. But um, yeah, like the stress of being Miami right now might not be conducive to my lifestyle. You mentioned this earlier about how you keep going back to Florida as as writing about Florida, and even though you haven't lived in the state for, I think, 19, 20 years, mm -hmm. what is it that kind of is still drawing you back to Florida um, to write about it in your work? I think it's the drama of it. <laughs> even, you know, I mean, even the weather is dramatic. The people are dramatic. Um, the action there just seems so much more authentic than here. And I mean, also, there's just not, like, that's my place. I can write it as an insider. At least it's to an extent I can write it as an insider if I'm not writing about like 2021 and, you know, the design district or something. Right. <laughs> then I can, you know, some district that didn't exist when I lived there. But here I would always be writing 
you know, from an outsider's point of view, I think. And um, setting is really important to me. The way that setting and character work together, that is just, uh, it's just the way I write, you know, that, that setting is influenced by point of view and vice versa. So Florida's got a great setting. Yeah. You were saying that you just finished your most recent manuscript and you said you're also working on some short stories. Can you talk to us a little bit about what future stuff you're working on? Sure. I have this sort of pie-in-the-sky idea that I'm going to write. This is what I'm going to do when I go to the monastery, which I call the nunnery because it's run by nuns. I'm going to write a series of short stories, interconnected short stories about a group of people who live on a cul-de-sac. And one of them is in a bad accident that everybody else witnesses. And it's basically going to be about how monogamy is bullshit. And so you started <laughs> writing writing. And you're going to write on at the monastery? Yeah, I just started. That's interesting couple, to be yeah. writing about mon- non-monogamy and the, the nunnery. <laughs> yeah. I wonder how those are. oxymoron or something like yeah. that. Or, or maybe it isn't because, you know, they haven't committed to a monogamous relationship either. They are very, um, you know, they're kind of like sort of, you know, they all wear Patagonia and they're constantly on their bikes. Like they're very like modern lefty nuns, you know. They don't wear habits Progressive nuns. Yeah, I forgot some of them. Well, I'm excited to, re- to to know that you've written more and are re- and writing more, so I will stay up with those. Is there anything else you want to mention that you might have coming up or that people should know about? Um, no, I'm you know on a hiatus like the rest of the world. Um, everybody should stay very safe, please, yeah. so that my children can go to school again. Amen. Thank you for making the time. You know, we really enjoyed your book a lot. She's been talking about it to anyone that will listen. Um, I'm so glad. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're more than welcome. It's been my pleasure. So we talked to Susanna today about her book. She gave us some good advice. And we are recording this from the future. And she actually sent you a couple books, her second book. I was thrilled. And she sent me more than one. What was the other book? The other book was Rodham. And the basis of that is what if Hillary had never married Bill? He had asked her two times and she had said no each time. The third time she, in real life, said yes. But in the book... Well, maybe we'll get a review from you. A little review I in the future. I just can't we'll wait see. Uh, to read both of them. Yes. So that was nice to Susanna. We want to say thank you to her. Oh, yes. I wanted to say, too, that this short story collection that Susanna is working on is called Monogamy is for the Week. Be on the lookout for that one. Seems like some lawn people are here. The dog's starting to bark. So I guess that's our time to say goodbye. Subscribe. I can't forget to say subscribe to the podcast. Send us an email. Let us know what you think. And have a great sunny day. If you can't send an email, send money. Sure. We accept all forms. Cash. Gift Venmo. Gift cards. (laughs) Books. Edible bouquets. (laughs) Chocolate. Chocolate. Meat. Smoked meat. Okay. (laughs) Bye. Bye.